0: We got the alternative energy right. on we kill our Free Autonomy. We and what welcome we to the radioactive show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio
1: Network.
2: Target in sight. Where in hell is Major Kong?
1: The Hulk, Radioactive Man, Captain Adam, Dr. Manhattan, Spider-Man, Astroboy, James Bond, Godzilla. What do they all have in common? This week on The Radioactive Show, we're exploring radioactive themes in pop culture. Movies, comics, TV shows, books, toys, deodorants, beer, nuclear themes seem to work their way into everything. Why is radioactivity so fascinating? Who are the nuclear characters we've grown up with and what are they telling us? To answer these questions, we have the help of Lucy Hancock, A.C. Hunter, Zach and Michael Broderick. All of them are aficionados of nuclear culture. Zach is 11 years old and Michael Broderick has been studying and writing on the topic for 35 years. This is The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network.
2: Hey, what about Major Kong? (coughs)
3: Like in mainstream comics, there's a whole bunch of superheroes that got uh, superpowers from
1: um, nuclear forces. Lucy Hancock and A.C. Hunter, anti-nuclear activists and comic addicts from Western Australia.
3: So Spider-Man got bitten by a radiated spider. Um, the Hulk got um, irradiated by gamma radiation instead of the Fantastic Four, Dr. Manhattan. Um, had an experiment to go wrong in the lab, and ended up um, disintegrating himself due to radiation, and then putting himself together
4: as a superhero. Daredevil who got um, in a nuclear accident and got blinded, and his senses heightened and things.
1: Yeah. Why do you think nuclear radiation provides such a useful reason for normal humans to become powerful? Why? Why nuclear?
4: I mean it has such holds such kind of freaky, terrifying mystery in that it sucks with our DNA, and there's no kind of i mean there's so much possibility with that and um, all the mutating um, genes that come on after that, you know we have mutant children and blah blah blah, and well, why couldn't that be into superpowers but yeah, pretty much the same thing, and just the unknown when it
3: comes to nuclear um radiation, like it's just it's very random the kind of mutations that you see and the potential for that in terms of yeah, how people apply that to their imagination and the possibilities. But yeah, it tends to be something that they see as uh, positive and that it gives you superpowers um, although there is um, some difficulties in that like Dr. Mad- um, Manhattan keeps emitting radiation, and therefore it's sort of a danger to others around them. You can't be close to people.
4: What really formulated for me as a really young age in the early '80s, was Astro Boy, and I grew up on a diet of Astro Boy, where it's sort of set with background of anti-nuclear themes, and he is supposed to have a little nuclear reactor in his heart that powers him. But the most famous, or well, the the part of it that's really quite interesting, is that it comes from a comic written by Osamu Tezuka, who um, has written hundreds of comics. On humanism and um, war and peace, and how that refers to anti nuclear stuff. And so much of it hasn't been translated into English, which is a real shame. Mm. But a massive part of his canon is surrounded by anti nuclear themes.
5: I. Um, in year six, um, and I know quite a bit about, you know, superheroes and, um, their personalities and how they got their, um, powers and yeah, yeah.
1: Great. That's what we're looking for. So can you start by telling me about, um, one of your favorite or one of the sort of nuclear, characters that you think is quite interesting
5: um probably the hulk is one of the um most obvious ones um um, hulk is from marvel and um he was a scientist and he created a gamma bomb um and He um, accidentally set it off, and that um, kind of proved that that's pretty dangerous. Mm. And what
1: what happened when he set um, it off?
5: uh, Well, he was exposed to mass radiation. Um, In real life, he would have been dead, um, probably splattered uh, across the wall. So, yeah, Um, but in um, this case, apparently, he mutates into a giant um, green destroying machine, I guess, okay. whenever he gets angry. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So, is he a good
5: character or a bad character? He's a good character, um, but mm-hmm. he has some temper issues, and um, there's a whole story about um, um, him having friends who try to help him out. Um, and find out that he's actually this you know monster
3: and
1: yeah they've got these special abilities but they're also dangerous so it's sort of like they're saying there's this um, power but it's also a a terrible power and you have to be very careful like that's Mm. so interesting with the hulk that it's you know he's very powerful but um it's unpredictable and it's kind of scary and it's troublesome yeah Mm. yeah
5: um well i guess there's that old saying with great power comes great responsibility and Mm. you know you kind of also need to have control over that power as well
2: I'm Associate Professor of Media Analysis at Murdoch University over in Perth, and uh, I guess for the last 30 years or so, I've been um, interested in the way media and popular culture and and culture in general has represented and reflected back and perhaps anticipated historical themes concerning uh, the acquisition of nuclear weapons, the development of nuclear energy through the um, fuel cycle, chain and storage, and the way it's impacted on our day-to-day lives in both conscious and unconscious ways. And I guess I started my interest in this as an undergraduate, as a student growing up in the, um, I guess, the neo-Cold War era of Reagan and Thatcher, when there was a lot of debate about uranium mining land rights and the uh, sighting of existing and perhaps further and future American um, military bases and intelligence bases on Australian soil. So my anti-nuclear activism coincided with my nuclear culture research, which Mm -hmm. led to a a major uh, research publication, a reference work, looking at the history of nuclear films and, to some degree, television really constructed a a filmography, a list of films uh, from around the world, which ended up being about a thousand films that were made um, Mm. around the world as feature dramas that in, in one way or another touched on this theme. these series or when you see remakes of things all of these cultural products reflect the time in which they're made and what's often the case with science fiction films or films that kind of look into the not too distant future they're really telling us about ourselves they're not really looking at some kind of future or alien race there's a kind of anthropomorphizing where we where we're projecting aspects of our society using this type of film genre as a way of um on themes that we would normally shy away from or would find too confronting. or mm-hmm. um, So one of the benefits of this often maligned type of genre is that it can it can mask overt discussion or overt um, representation of certain themes. So in the James Bond films, of course, what I always find remarkable about these films, and it happens all the way through, the, the grand narratives of the hero that somehow is the only person on the planet that can prevent catastrophe.
0: Mm. So
2: what these films do is they present a singular usually male deeply patriarchal uh, hero figure that usually goes against authority <laughs> does his own maverick thing to at the last minute literally the last minute prevent the end of the world. And that may be through thermonuclear war or it may be through the prevention of an alien invasion or something like that but mm. there's something about this figure that actually works against collective census where we actually trust our authorities, because these mm. things tell us we can't trust the military, we can't trust the police, we can't trust the politicians, we can't trust civil society that's based on democratic principles to prevent these kinds of catastrophic events.
0: Mm. So there's something
2: really interesting that how we continually invest hope and entertainment and excitement to be titillated by the idea that we're all going to die or be invaded or have some kind of perilous activity. <laughs> Mm. But we actually abrogate our trust and responsibility through these kinds of screen characters um, that ultimately can be quasi-fascist, you know, in terms of what they're doing, overriding uh, law and um, convention to, to just blunder through and um, save us in the end.
1: Mm. Do you think there's a, a, broad, a broader warning in implicit in these films about nuclear technology generally or is, is the nuclear aspect just a tool to talk about other things like authority and the state? Absolutely. Well, it can be both, and it can
2: be both simultaneously. So, for example, there's a term called the MacGuffin, which uh, Alfred Hitchcock used to use, and he, he would say that the MacGuffin was a narrative device that brought about something. It was like a plot device that was necessary to really get to the heart of the matter, which was something else.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So nuclear technologies or a threat of war or invasion or aliens might might be a MacGuffin in that sense, in which really it could have been some other thing, but we're using you know, the atomic theme or the atomic trope as a stand-in to really kind of talk about other things. But in other instances, it's absolutely fundamental. And what you can see over, over, over a kind of historical arc when you're looking at thousands of these cultural projects They ebb and flow over time in the types of tropes, the types of narratives, the type of iconography that's used in all kinds of genres. Throughout the Cold War, nuclear weapons were either something that might have to be used against the communists or there would be a fear that if it was used, we ourselves would die. When I say we, I mean the Western world because I'm really talking principally about Uh, North American, European cinema. But the idea being that um, when we got to a point of a real concern that through fallout, through Strontium-90, being picked up through atmospheric nuclear tests in everybody's bones in the late 50s, early 60s, and then these international conventions around disarmament and um, atmospheric nuclear testing came into place, what that meant was there was already an international kind of sensibility that we were poisoning ourselves with these weapons, and if they ever got used, despite all the civil defence propaganda, despite what politicians would say, popular culture was showing us consistently in films that it would literally be the end of the world and that the, the, um, the living would actually envy the dead because the scenario of surviving in those kind of post-Holocaust uh, situations was always graphically rendered as, um, as pretty un- unpleasant. But I also just want to touch on the fact that as we got into the post-Cold War era from about 1991 onwards, movies started to use nuclear weapons because, of course, they couldn't be used as a deterrent anymore because the Cold War was over, so to speak. So mm. they they gained this extra utility of being able to repel alien invasion, or they'd be used to blow up, you know, comets or meteors that were threatening the Earth. Mm. So... Or, you know, in a film like Core, they were used to kick-start the um, circulation of uh, the Earth's core to kind of stop us from, from dying. I mean, um, there's a film like Sunshine, where all the nuclear weapons and all the nuclear material gets put together and blown into the sun because the sun's petering out. And we need mm. to kick start the sun.
0: Mm. So
2: there's something very interesting in the way that we've replaced, in many ways, a fear of um, uh, superpower, nuclear exchange, and potential Armageddon... Mm. Okay, we have this surplus capital value in these weapons. Let's use them in other imaginative ways. Mm. Um, So, again, if you think about this historically, uh, you can see patterns over time in the way uh, nuclear technology is represented, and that, that goes with nuclear reactors as well.
1: You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Radioactivity, its awe-inspiring and terrible power seems to be an addictive plot device for countless comic, film and TV producers. This week we're looking at some examples, how they've mutated throughout history, excuse the pun, and what they're trying to tell us. The Radioactive Show has been talking to AC Hunter, Lucy Hancock, Zach and Michael Broderick. Let's get back to it. Mm. Um,
2: After after Mile Island, for example, in... uh in America, virtually every toy and game or film that represented uh, the civilian nuclear power industry was almost entirely showing them as being evil um, capitalists mm. who were bent on, you know, profit at the expense of uh, the communities that they wanted to serve as utilities. And that's pretty much continued through through the Simpsons and any number of films. So there are there are ways in which. Um, I, on the one hand, there are kind of overt propagandistic industry or government uh, films and pamphlets and advertising and product placement that promotes this stuff. But in some ways, in popular culture, there's often a cynicism or a pushback against that uh, that comes through in often surprising ways that aren't particularly obvious at the time when you're viewing the material.
3: always The Simpsons, which is my favourite like uh, pop culture reference to nuclear issues.
1: Yeah, what do you think yeah. The Simpsons is saying? Well, I think
3: it's a pretty um, clearly a, a critique of nuclear power, especially around the kind of incompetence and potential for human error in terms of um, safety stuff, considering Homer Simpsons as their um, safety officer.
0: Yeah, yeah true. You know,
3: I mean, there's things like the, the episode where Blinky, the three-eyed fish comes out, um, and there's sort of references to that throughout the, the various series about the radioactive contamination of the water around Springfield nuclear power plants.
1: Because mm. The Simpsons is huge. I mean, I don't, I don't know many people who will not have seen an episode of The Simpsons. I wonder if these themes permeate into... The broader society. Do you think? Do you think they do?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that probably. I suspect that has a major. The Simpsons had a major contribution to me becoming an anti-nuclear activist and my ideas about what nuclear power was and how it worked. I think a lot of stuff that I learned after that I framed in terms of the Simpsons and just the fact that there are there are real people sitting behind, um, you know, the computer monitoring screens and potentially some of them aren't, um, you know, fully qualified for the job or particularly onto it or possibly just having a bad day. Um,
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I think that's probably true for, for a lot of people who grew up in the 90s.
5: Yeah, he does work in the big power plant and it does kind of give you the idea that it's trying to send the message that, you know, it is kind of dangerous. But um, actually there is a superhero from that um, and his name is Radioactive Man and um, he is a guy out of a comic um, in, like, you know, Bart's favourite comic, um, superhero character. And he, he is, and, um, uh, Homer Simpson, he, um, basically kind of creates him accidentally in a way.
1: Do you think that watching these characters and, um, learning, learning about them, do you think it's affected what you think about nuclear matters? Um,
5: sort of. It, it's kind of irritating that they feel like they have to associate this with our day-to-day lives in, like, you know, TV shows, books, comics. Um, and I, I think it has, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I haven't always known what nukes can do and what, you mm. know, radioactive waste and, you know, all that stuff has, mm. you know, can do and what it has done in the past. So, yeah. mm. Um, I think the characters that they have now, um, I think they're great characters, just their backstory's a bit dodgy with the, you know, radioactive stuff and all, yeah. Mm.
1: And what do you think about the future of, of nuclear culture in films and do you think we'll see, uh, see a response to the Fukushima disaster in movies coming, coming soon?
2: There's already been a, a couple of responses. I mean, the, the recent remake of the Godzilla film was, was kind of bizarre in, in the way it almost avoided Fukushima um, mm. and also the way it really avoided it's predecessors that talked about nuclear testing but it didn't really blame the americans which the, the origin of godzilla of course was the the bravo nucle- the dirty bravo nuclear test uh, that contaminated a vast area of the, of the south pacific mm. uh, alongside one of the japanese fishing vessels and that inspired the original film but the remake doesn't really gesture towards that very much in terms of allocating blame nor does it really talk too much about fukushima or, although it's there uh,
3: um, basically there's this small Japanese village and they start getting earthquakes and kind of um, strange things happening and um, I think like fishing boats going missing um, and then it's mm, a Godzilla comes out from a cavern underneath the ocean where it's been like hidden since the prehistoric age and starts, um destroying homes and
4: blowing fire at people. It seems that Godzilla was based on the incident of the Lucky Dragon, the fishing boat that Mm. was um, by the Marshall Islands, I think, Mm. when, um, because I think it was Americans, the atomic atomic bomb, and um, they were in the fallout and got completely irradiated and were very ill indeed by the time they got back to Japan. And...
2: There's other mm. other things like, for example, um, after the Twin Towers came down uh, in the in the attacks on America, a number of films very quickly and TV series like 24 really started buying into um, the idea that there'd be a, a suitcase nuclear weapon that terrorists would get a hold of, mm. either from the former uh, Soviet Empire that had you know crumbled, or that. Um, cashed up, uh, Arabs would, you know, be able to purchase these things. And so Mm -hmm. there are lots of films that that dealt with that. But coincidentally, there are also films and TV series that showed nuclear attacks in a a kind of post-September 11 world in America, uh, such as Jericho, where it was actually uh, right-wing Americans that were causing these and trying to blame it on other people. So these are mainstream television series and mainstream films that, that are giving a kind of yin and a yang or both sides of the spectrum of these types of representations. So so while popular culture has often been criticized as being, you know, just some kind of unconscious conduit for injecting the transmission of a message into a mass audience, we're no longer mass audiences. We're, we, can, we can watch this material any time we want. We can scrutinize it. We can replay it. We can pick up on nuance and sophistications in ways that broadcast television would never let us Mm. so there's something that i i feel that um you know these large big picture mass uh, culture products will continue to show both sides or the full spectrum of the way atomic and nuclear technologies are represented Mm Usually, always a lag. So, the Fukushima-type uh, tropes that may play out may come out in another five years. It may take that it may take that long for it to really come out in mainstream, um, popular, commercial film or television. But what's really fascinating is through social media, YouTube, Vimeo, uh, the opportunity of these. Uh, new new technologies, these digital technologies to get messages out. It's almost uh, creating an alternative media sphere where mm. people can give testimony, they can go into these places, they can do artworks in ways that weren't really there 10 years ago, mm. 15 years ago. So we may see something happening not necessarily in a countercultural cultural stage, but in, a, in an alternative uh, media sphere that it acts as a counterpoint to whatever Hollywood or the globalised uh, corporate entertainment industries you know, regurgitate up for us to, um, to consume.
1: This week on The Radioactive Show, we've been looking at the use of nuclear themes in popular culture. The mystery and unpredictable power of nuclear radiation has been capturing creative imaginations since the Manhattan Project and probably will continue to do so for a long time to come. After all, radioactive waste does last tens of thousands of years. We've touched on a few examples and themes in this week's show, and there is obviously a lot more out there. If you'd like some further reading, or if you want to just send in your thoughts, please email us on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com, and that's three the number. Many thanks to our guests on this week's show, anti-nuclear aficionados Lucy Hancock and AC Hunter, Michael Broderick, Associate Professor of Media Analysis at Murdoch University, and Zach, who is in Grade 6 and knows all the superheroes. This program is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across this gorgeous and troubled country on the community radio network. My name's Jem, and we'll be back with another dose on The Radioactive Show next week. Yeah You heard about 3CR's national programs? Come on on community radio stations around Australia. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne.
4: Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else.
2: Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs.
4: Anything nasty online seems to be
1: targeted against
3: women. Muckety is
2: a
4: bad deal, but muckety is absolutely
3: not a done deal.
1: You're listening to Women on the Line.
3: Welcome again to Lost in Science.
1: And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network.
0: Hello and
3: welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Swall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the
0: Bands Play.
1: Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network.